everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm Lori LeBay, the founder of Alzheimer Speaks and your host here at the radio show. Before we get started today with our, with our show um, and our wonderful guest, uh, Michael Bennett, uh, I'm going to tell people a little bit about Alzheimer Speaks because we're always getting new people and they all want to know what we're about. So we'll just get that out of the way. Um, bottom line, Alzheimer Speaks is an advocacy-based company, and we provide multiple platforms around the world to shift our dementia care uh, from crisis to comfort. And we believe that by joining forces and sharing knowledge and having an everyday conversation like we're going to do today with Michael, that we're going to better be able to help people live graciously with this disease. Um, we're going to be able to help them remove some of the stigmas attached to memory loss and give them some helpful tips in terms of how to engage and how to process and, and how to move forward with your life. Um, at our core, we also believe really strongly that the only way we're going to win this battle is through collaboration. And that is one of the things that I've loved so much about starting Alzheimer Speaks is we um, have just had an opportunity to work with so many different agencies and people around the world in terms of trying to shift our dementia care and I want to thank everybody for that. I also want to thank our audience, our listeners. You see, you've had a big impact, if you know it or not. Every time you like, you click, you share on one of our platforms, be it the radio show today, if it's our blog, if it's our website, if it's our Dementia Chats video interviews with people living with dementia, or um, many other initiatives that we have, Every time you push those out to your sphere of influence, you are shifting our dementia care culture. You're getting the word out there that this is a conversation that needs to be had. Um, you're allowing people to see information and to reach out to it when they're ready to. And because of that, you also got us named the number one influencer online by ShareCare and Dr. Oz. And uh, Maria Shriver also acknowledged us as an architect of change for humanity. And again, when I say um, recognized us, I mean all of us, um, because we're a team working together on that. And so I really do appreciate your efforts, and I hope that they will continue. I also want you to think about your own story. Could you be a next guest here? We talk with everybody, people living with dementia who are diagnosed, those that are caring for them. Uh, we talk with advocates, we talk with authors, we talk with researchers, we talk with businesses that have um, developing concepts, uh, services and tools for people. So again, it takes all of us, um, our, our government officials, in terms of what they're trying to do. Um, so if you think you might like to be a guest, please reach out to me. Just go to alzheimerspeaks.com and, uh, and we'll go from there. I also want to mention um, the cruise we are doing, which is really exciting, November 11th through the 18th. We are going to be doing a seven-day 
conference and cruise on Holland America, and we're going to the Caribbean. And it will be myself, Cindy Lezinski, who is heading up a grassroots effort in northern Colorado for dementia. And then we have four people who are diagnosed with dementia who will also be speakers. Harry Urban, Michael Ellenbogen, Lori Shear, and Mary Reed, um, along with Kathy Schof, who is our travel agent and who was also an RN, and Becky Watson, who is a music therapist. And you can find more information on alzheimerspeaks.com. You can just go to our our homepage and you'll find information, or you can go into our initiatives tab and you'll find a a whole tab on the cruise um, where you can actually print out flyers and programming and um, our programming will be changing. We're going to add even more stuff to it. So some exciting times ahead and we are encouraging people with dementia and their care partners and families to join us. We'd love this to be intergenerational. So um, there's just so much for us to be able to learn and experience from one another. So let's uh, start off with our show today. Um, our topic is Man's Best Friend Supports a Mother with Dementia. And we are lucky enough to have Michael Gordon Bennett, who is the founder of Bennett Global Entertainment. He has his BA in journalism from California State University, Northridge, and his writings have appeared in the Huffington Post. Um, His second book, which we're going to talk about today, is called Rusty's War, A Battle of the Mind, that tells a story of his mother's battle with Alzheimer's and how she um, came to depend on her dog for support. Um, Michael is an Air Force veteran and currently resides in Las Vegas. So we're thrilled to have you, Michael. How are you doing today? I'm well. Thank you very much. Well, good. Um, we're very interested in hearing about uh, your book, Rusty's War. But before we go there, can you tell us a little bit about your experience um, and kind of history with your mom? When was she diagnosed and, and how did that even come to be? Okay. Uh, yeah, my mother was actually diagnosed four years ago this month. It was April of 2013, but she knew, and I think we all had an inkling that she had started suffering long before. Uh, we're fortunate living in Las Vegas at the Cleveland Clinic. Lou Ruro Brain Institute is here. Mm-hmm. The problem that we had was just getting a referral to the clinic. We actually went through uh, multiple primary care physicians who thought my mother's complaining of her memory loss was nothing more than the rants of a quote-unquote old woman. She was 72 at the time, and uh, we all knew better. We just couldn't get the referral. And uh, after changing primary care physicians a few times, we finally got uh, a doctor who understood because her parents had gone through it. Mm-hmm. And we got the referral immediately. And within a month, we were sitting in the Cleveland Clinic doing all the evaluation tests, and it wasn't uh, probably another 30 to 60 days after that, that the official diagnosis uh, came out. And, you know, prior to all of that, you know, mom was still functioning, you know, in a pretty good clip. She was able to do things for herself up to and including still driving a car. Within 10 days of diagnosis, I had to take her car keys from her um, because uh, she sat uh, crying in her car one day and couldn't figure out which key turned the engine over. And there was mm-hmm. only two keys on a ring, one for the house and one for the car. Uh-huh. So uh, things got progressively worse. Um 
to the naked eye to somebody looking in on the family, they wouldn't have noticed, but we started to notice little things. But she was still functioning. She could probably function another two years, and then things just went bad after that, um, uh, uh, you know, no longer being able to uh, remember anything, not taking care of herself, the house falling into disrepair, some of the same stories I'm sure you've heard of a thousand times from other Alzheimer's sufferers. Yeah, it is It it is really interesting how we cannot notice this disease. And and yet when you're really close, you, you know, you can you can either see it really, really well or it's so tiny and minute that you you don't really you don't really notice it. It just kind of is a as a subtle change. So we see we see both, um, you know, uh, in in terms of family struggling. But the common thing I think is that just what you said is most people will say once it's diagnosed, you look back and go, oh yeah, this has been going on a while, <laughs> you know. But but you just didn't have that diagnosis and. And some of it might be denial. Um, some of it might just be it's really well hidden and we all adapt, you know, in life as time goes on um, with things. But it's a it's a it's a tricky it's a tricky little disease um, to diagnose and into and, and to, you know, get somebody in uh, to a doctor who truly understands. That's part of the trick as well, as as I'm sure you're well aware of um, to get a proper yeah. diagnosis. Oh, absolutely. And speaking to that, we have actually, every time I take her to a doctor that's unrelated to Alzheimer's, I'm actually pretty amazed that after, even after I explain to the doctors, whether it's a primary care physician or a gastroenterologist or whatever, they don't seem to have a grasp. They start asking mom a bunch of questions, even after I've given them my canned speech, which I now give to every doctor who sees her for the first time about unresponsiveness and uh, not being able to comprehend, and they don't seem to understand. I'd like to get a group of them in a room and just explain to them what Alzheimer's is so that they, because, you know, a lot of doctors have actually gotten upset with my mother because she couldn't respond to their questions. Mm -hmm. And I've had to step in again and again and again. So it gets kind of annoying when some people, even in the medical profession, don't understand it. Yeah, it gets really frustrating, uh, you know, because you, you're going there thinking they know, because that's what we've all been taught is, you know, respect the doctor, they know what's going on, yada, yada, yada. And then it kind of disrupts your confidence in them when you're thinking, how do you not know this? You know? Absolutely. And you would think, especially, I don't want to say it's widespread, the attention to Alzheimer's has been over the last four or five years, but you would think they somewhere in their continuation of their medical training and patient outreach that something like this would come up in their discussions. And I've talked to several uh, doctors who are unrelated to the uh, uh, neurology field, and they've all said, no, they've had no training in this whatsoever. So I, I know it's a problem. Yep. Yeah, and we we hear that repeatedly, um, just over and over and over, and and it's and it's hard because it it really makes this whole transition I think even more difficult for the family, and that's the last thing anybody needs. You know, we we need to make this a smoother, <laughs> smoother, easier process. How painful was it for you? Um, you know, when you you came to you know, see your mom having Alzheimer's and starting to, to talk about it um, to people in the community? Actually, it, I think I kind of knew, but 
keep in mind, I knew nothing about Alzheimer's. And uh, I, I remember when the doctor gave us the diagnosis, mom didn't understand any of it. And it, it was kind of left up to me to explain it in layman's terms mm-hmm. to her as we were driving home. And I remember I had tears streaming down my face as I was trying to keep her car on the road. And mom was just stoic. My mother's a an introvert by nature anyway. She was very stoic on the drive home. She didn't say much. And then she got home, and I think the realization hit her that she had something that she was not going to be able to beat. Um, and m- looking at her face just basically broke my heart. I mean, you know, I'm six foot four and 250 pounds. I'm a pretty good-sized guy, but the emotional pull on my heart just, like, just sunk me to levels I have never even experienced. And even to this day, you know, four years later, looking back on that day when we were diagnosed, I still, I have to almost shut it out of my head. It really, really bothers me. And my mother and I are extremely close. So um, to say I was devastated would be an understatement. Uh, I have only found out recently, in addition to my mother having Alzheimer's, her older sister has it. And my grandmother also had it. So mm-hmm. it seems to have devastated the uh, female side of my mother's side of the family to the point where even all my cousins, I'm the only male out of eight children, eight uh, cousins, all my cousins are now worried about it. And it's uh, starting to rip apart parts of our family because it is such a you know devastating illness to deal with. Yeah, and it it is hard when you look at you know, the genealogy and stuff of, of what it does to a family. And then you kind of, I, I, for my family, I kind of go, well, how did I not know that? <laughs> you know, because my, my mom yeah. used to say that her mom had Alzheimer's and the rest of the family kind of looked at my mom going, no, that's the morphine from the cancer, you know. Mm-hmm. And apparently there must have been a diagnosis that none of us knew about, but it, it was so long ago, no one even talked about Alzheimer's. So we all had to kind of scramble and look it up and, it's not like my mom was a you know big computer whiz or anything, um, so it was. It's just kind of interesting, um, you know. And then the names have changed in terms of what they call it over the years, you know, from hardening mm-hmm. of the arteries to, you know, a zillion other things. Um, so if if we all kind of look at that, it's kind of like you know this has been out here really a long, long time, and um, and now. You know, it's it's coming to light in a whole a whole different fashion. You know, people are starting to now talk about it like you know we do need a cure, and this this you know this isn't acceptable anymore. Um, now, in in no. mm-hmm. oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask you in terms of of writing your book. You know, how does Rusty the dog help your mom cope with the disease? Well, because I didn't live near her for a while, he was the one constant in her life. He came to her when he was just eight weeks old, and they've been together nine years now. And that little guy, is a, he's a little dachshund, a little wiener dog, and he is a really, really smart. He can tell when something's wrong with her up to the point where he'll come get me. If I'm sitting in another room, he'll actually grab me and lick my hand and tell me to get up. And normally when he does that, I know something's wrong. If he doesn't have to go to the restroom, it's usually something to do with my mother, and I'll get up and go in the room and check on her. And, uh, you know, they've always said that dogs are somewhat intuitive to their owners, and dachshunds are notorious for being a one-person dog. Mm -hmm. And uh, But he comforts her. I mean, you know, she 
talks to him as if she were talking to a little doll, like a little girl now and things like that. And, you know, most dogs are somewhat loyal to a fault anyway. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Rusty will turn and he'll bark at her and, and, and turn his head sideways. And just, you know, it, it, it's something that maybe to an outsider would look silly, but to somebody like yourself and myself who've now had experience with this, it's a very touching scene to see this playing out before your eyes and honestly the two of them can't do without one another and and uh, unfortunately I may have to get to the point soon where my ability to care for mamas uh, is diminishing as she gets worse and I may have to separate the two of them and I'm I'm not looking forward to that day at all it's going to break my heart if I have to do that mm-hmm. um, but for right now for the last eight years it's worked he has always been there for her even when my siblings and I were out of the area and off doing our careers and whatever else we do in life, raising our own families, to see this little doll just kind of keep her, you know, on an even keel. That's the one thing she has not forgotten in all of this is doggy care. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, she'll pester me 25 times a day to make sure he's fed or to make sure he's got water or to make sure he's gone to the restroom. Whereas she may forget to take care of herself, she always remembers Rusty. Mm-hmm. Isn't that amazing? It just, it's yep. just, but you know, it's that long-term <laughs> yep. memory and it's just, it's the way it's always been. And it's a super high priority that touches her heart. And uh, yep. it makes total logical sense for her not to forget that. Yeah. I mean, the only thing now is now I'm also having to be concerned with Rusty's well-being. Mom tries to pick him up, for example. And, you know, wiener dogs have, um, dogs have a long, elongated back mm-hmm. and it's stressed on them when you pick them up and she keeps trying to pick him up and I uh, keep having to make her put him down because it, she's hurt him a couple of times. So now I'm really on guard as to, you know, making sure she lets him be Mm-hmm. and move around on his own when he climbs up on her bed at night to go to sleep and she's starting to get it because she doesn't want to hurt him. Every time she thinks she hurts him, you know, she almost passes out. So mm-hmm. I have to kind of make sure that I'm on top of that so that nothing happens. Yep. Does he have like little steps to climb up into her bed or is it one where you have to pick her up? Because I'm wondering if something like that might help that situation. Actually, I placed it. I placed a chair next to the bed so he jumps on the chair and then onto the bed. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> It's actually, you know, his, his own little step, and he's actually taken over the chair in her room. That's his chair now. Nobody sits in that <laughs> any longer. <laughs> and she, neither does she, by the way. She knows, she, she knows that's his way of getting onto the bed, so she lets him have it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. Well, and it is interesting, you know, the like you said, the intuitiveness of the dog. Um, you know, in most dogs, I mean, every dog I've always had, I mean, they just know if you're sad or you're happy or whatever, and they just kind of nuzzle oh, yeah. in and they're just right there. No questions asked, you know, no talking back, just, just there to, <laughs> there to support you. And that doesn't change when, when somebody has dementia. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you was, um, you know, what was really the most shocking thing that you discovered about, about this disease? What, what really surprised you about it? Uh, this is going to sound, oh, I don't want to say bizarre, but I have to, or self-serving or whatever, but what I found the most shocking was the cost of care. Mm-hmm. I was devastated at the cost of care because, you know, in trying to help my mom have a, maintain a quality of life that I thought she deserved, I knew I needed help. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, because I also travel for a living and I bet 
two sisters, one who doesn't even live anywhere near here, I knew I needed to be able to provide for her, for her whether it was adult daycare or 24-hour nursing or something to help me out. And when I started to inquire about it and compared that to her uh, retirement income, I knew we were in trouble. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's been 18 months since I last worked because it's uh, fallen on me to kind of take care of everything. And I was I, I can't express my frustration at the cost of the illness itself. Uh, I have obviously since done a lot of research and found that I wasn't alone. Mm-hmm. But when it first hit me, I felt like I was alone. I, mean, I, I kept thinking to myself, how do people do this? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was talking to people at the Cleveland Clinic. I was talking to people at the various Alzheimer's uh, uh, groups around the country. And I had heard horror stories of people paying between $5,500 and $10,000 a month. I'm like, where do they get the money from? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. And where does... Yeah, it just it just was so overwhelming, and you know, my mom's got a decent retirement income, and her income doesn't come close to any of those figures. So if I, if I had to answer that question honestly, it would be that. Mm-hmm. Um, as regards to my mother directly with Alzheimer's, I think the thing that's caught me off guard the most is I always seem to be playing catch up to her illness. Mm -hmm. Little things disappear, it seems like, on a monthly basis from her memory, and I always seem to be behind. It's like I can't anticipate fast enough to stay in front of the illness to anticipate her needs. I'm starting to get better at it, but I haven't gotten there yet. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, it is a process, that's for sure. Um, There's absolutely no... No doubt about that. And it's constantly changing, you know, and, and probably always will. And that makes it even even more difficult at times. Um, do you, yeah, it, it really does. Yeah. Um, how are your siblings dealing with this? Are you kind of the primary care partner for, for your mom then? <laughs> yes, I am. I have uh, two younger sisters, one who lives in California and the other one who actually lives here in Las Vegas. And um, they're more hands-off. They've kind of uh, allowed me to handle things. Now, fortunately for us, one of the ways that we were able to deal with some of the financial implications was that my sister who lives here in Las Vegas is actually renting my mother's house. Mm -hmm. So I'm able to use that income now to support some of my mother's care needs, which was extremely helpful to her and to me and to the entire family. Um, Unfortunately... And I don't know how true this is with other Alzheimer's sufferers or anybody in general who does not have the disease, but my mother hated making what I call late life decisions. Mm-hmm. And she left all that to me and just dumped it in my lap. And, and I remember, and I actually mentioned this in the book about, you know, my mom and I, she's, I've been her confidant since I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the one thing we thought about was her unwillingness to deal with late life anything. And uh, I, I feel awful now because I'm having to make a lot of these decisions without her input. Mm-hmm. Um, as regards to my sisters, uh, I don't even think they totally comprehend the disease itself. Uh, every time my sister from California sees my mother, she tries to talk and engage like it's the old mom, the mm-hmm. one who was lucid and jovial and would smile and and. Uh, I think it takes her a day or two to adjust to that's not your mother anymore, not that woman that you remember. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I find other, like me personally, because I see her, you know, every day, I find other ways to appeal to her. There are parts of my mother's personality that are still intact. 
you know, joking. She likes it when I joke, mm-hmm. even if she doesn't understand the joke. I just change the inflection in my voice and she laughs, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, or if I see something on TV or something that I don't like and I use a little salty language, just like a little kid who got away with one, you know, my mom will laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I find little ways to engage her knowing that uh, what I said won't last more than 30 seconds, whereas my sisters, both of them, on the other hand, are still in this mode of trying to have long conversations with her, and that just doesn't work any longer. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I, I liked when you said, you know, even just changing the inflection of your voice, because um, so many people don't understand. It can be that simple. You know, it, yes. it, it doesn't it doesn't have to be really, really complicated. Um, and, and I, you know, I had two brothers that really weren't too hands on either. How how are you? And, and if you don't want to talk about this, I, I don't want to pressure you either, because I want to respect, you know, family privacy and stuff. But you know, for me, I, I I fought that a lot, and I wanted them to be different people. I wanted them to be more like me and, and more engaging, and uh, and that didn't work out so good, you know, <laughs> in, tr- in terms of in terms of trying to change them. And when I finally uh, you know came to a peaceful place of letting go, then I I found more time to be the daughter that I wanted to be, and. Um, decided not to take on the responsibility for their, for their life choices. And, um, well, honestly, I found myself in the same situation for the first four or five months. Mm -hmm. I I would get upset. I mean, the reason my mother's living with me now is because when her and my sister were living together, uh, it just didn't work out. And my sister also had a full-time job, which meant leaving mom at home alone for a lot of time. And you can't leave an Alzheimer's person at home anymore. So, Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, I got a little frustrated. I, I still get frustrated from time to time, even though it's been over a year since mom's been with me. But I've just, you know, learned to accept the fact that they are who they are. And that doesn't mean they don't love their mother anymore or any less. It's just that they have issues that they have to deal with in their own lives. And I just happen to be the right person at the right time in the right place. And it's my mother, you know, and I was going to make sure she was taken care of. So I, I've, I've learned to set that aside, much like what you just said, and, and move on with life, because I can't sit around and wait for them for decision-making anyway. And since I have all the decision-making authority, it just made my life easier. Yep. Yep. Well, and I think sometimes, you know, we want that confirmation. We, Because these are huge decisions. And so you don't want to have, you know, you don't want that afterthought of somebody accusing you of, well, why didn't you, you know, include me? And and those types of things. Um, and again, maybe you never ran into that, but I hear that from so many families. And Oh, um, I ran into it. <laughs> <laughs> I run into it every day. Yep. <laughs> One of them will disagree with the decision I made, but it won't help with the process. <laughs> yep. And so that, that makes it a little tricky. And, and I don't think, I, I know for my brothers, I don't think that they thought of that side of the 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 guilt that you know can be laid on kind of that primary caregiver and because we're typically I think most of those people are kind of peacemakers you know and they want to be inclusive and they're trying to do the right thing but you can't do the right thing if people won't talk to you and um, or won't be involved and and that's just I think part of the role but it's it can weigh, you know, it can be a huge burden, I think, for, for many people. But again, I, I found once I was able to let go, um, it was just a much freer situation for me. And um, and I think for everybody, you know, um, 
in that. And and I also learned how they perceived me, which is very different how, than how I perceived myself. <laughs> and so that was a <laughs> that was an interesting conversation from um being they perceived me as a control freak and I perceived myself as organized, you know. And there's a there's a <laughs> there's a lot of room between those two words. <laughs> You know? <laughs> yes, there is. And, um, you know, and then not stepping on toes and they didn't want to get in arguments and um, didn't feel the door was open. And I felt that I felt the door was wide open, you know, for a conversation. So sometimes it's just sitting back and and trying to have those uh, conversations more than once in in, in a different light. Um, yeah. But knowing that you're not going to change personalities, um you know, and then there's a point you just got to make a decision to to move forward as well, which it sounds like you did. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, my situation was somewhat the opposite of yours. I tried to engage them early on. Mm-hmm. And although they were never rude about it because they do love their mother, there is, you know, I, I don't have a, I, I'm not ever going to question that. They okay. just didn't have the wherewithal to get their uh, hands dirty and try to figure this out with me. And I just said, you know what, I may as well, I'm better off just making all the decisions myself. I will, I always brief them when I'm getting ready to do something, but I don't give them an option any longer. I just do it. Yep. And uh, I take all options off the table because I think knowing the relationship that I had with mother pre-Alzheimer's, I think she would have wanted me to take over anyway. Mm -hmm. And many of her friends have come to me and said there was no doubt she wanted me to take over. Mm -hmm. So uh, with knowing that that was how my mother felt, it's actually made it a lot easier to deal with my my sisters, both of them. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that's how it was in, in my house, too. Um, with, with my family. Um, but it was just, I don't know, sometimes as a, as that main care partner, you just want to feel a little support too, that they understand the role and, you know, in the big scheme of things, it really isn't all that important, (laughs) you know, as long as you're, as long as you're comfortable with what it is you're doing. Um, but it's looking for that, I think, natural approval that, you know, society sets us up to, to want, and when it's not right. there, then it can, it, you know, it can turn into another burden until you're ready to to set it free there. Um, now, you recently discovered several members of your family, you know, have had the disease. You know, how are how is everybody in the family coping with this? Are are people talking about maybe getting tested, or are, you know, is it ignored? Every family deals with it a little bit differently. My family would have made made great CIA operatives. <laughs> this is the most clandestine, closed mouth. I don't want to talk to it. Society of family members <laughs> I have ever seen in my life. And my mother is one of four, but she was the ringleader in terms of playing it close to the best. There were things her brothers and sisters never knew about her. Mm-hmm. There were things that her ex husband, my father, probably didn't know about her. Um, my my mother retired right at age 65, mm-hmm. and I always thought as I was attending her retirement ceremony that it was somewhat premature. She could have easily worked another five to seven, eight years, and I said, well, maybe she's just tired, but something in the back of my head, call it son's intuition or mm-hmm. something, some premonition said something's not right here, and uh, a Four, maybe three or four years after my mother retired, we went to Cleveland, Ohio, where her her, uh, parents moved to, um, and we went to visit. Mm -hmm. And I walked into my grandparents' house, 
and I'm hugging my grandmother, who was at the time 92, and my grandfather and treating them like I had always treated them. Mm-hmm. No one told me that my grandmother had had, had Alzheimer's for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And that my grandfather, who was also 92, had been recently diagnosed. Well, at 92 years old, you'd think, okay, Alzheimer's, you know, memory loss, that kind of goes with aging. But my grandmother had had Alzheimer's since, diagnosed Alzheimer's since her early 80s. So this is at least 10 years that no one in my family bothered to mention to me. Um, So I, you know, my aunt, my mother's younger sister, she actually started to explain the disease to me on the fly as I'm playing catch up and we're sleeping in their house. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I could uh, not uh, help but left to be wondering, what did they think of these strangers in their house? Mm-hmm. My, my grandparents didn't recognize their own daughter. They certainly didn't recognize me. It took them several days to figure it out uh, mm-hmm. that I was their grandson. And since I'm the only grandson in the family, it, uh, and my pictures were all over their house, it took my grandmother maybe a week to connect the dots, that, that those baby pictures were me. Mm-hmm. And so I spent the next, oh gosh, maybe three or four days just observing their behavior. You know, they were always awake at night. One of the things my grandmother liked to do was empty the closet of her clothing and fold them a thousand times and put them back. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather and my grandmother wouldn't say 10 words to each other, but they were perfectly content being in the same room. They were married for 73 years. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get the idea that one wasn't going anyplace without the other. Mm-hmm. Um and at this time, keep in mind that I still, no one has still really explained to me what Alzheimer's is. And so we're driving, my mother and I are driving back to um, uh, Las Vegas, and I started to ask her some questions, and she knew. She just didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, when we got home, of course, I blew a gasket because I should have been told, as we all should have. And uh, he basically said it was none of our business. But out. Okay. <laughs> I put out. Well, you know, four or five years later, she gets her diagnosis. Then earlier this year, after I wrote the first draft of my book, I found out her older sister had it. Then I spoke to my uncle, my mother's brother, and his um, his mother-in-law had it and actually lived with them. So my whole family had all this experience with Alzheimer's. I had two cousins who actually helped uh, care for their grandmother, and all of this time, I knew nothing about it. Wow. I mean, absolutely nothing. So now to answer your question about testing, I've spoken to both of my sisters about it. Uh, and, of course, they're in a little bit of denial right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do have one cousin who lives in Los Angeles and very, very worried that she uh, may uh, have may be afflicted with Alzheimer's at some point. She and I are the same age. Both of us are 59. Mm-hmm. And she's very worried about it. You know, and I started talking about the data, you know, two-thirds of Alzheimer's sufferers are women and the fact that there seems to be a higher propensity of it in, in uh, Latino and African-American families. And, you know, I'm, I'm running – and I've got the statistics memorized now, so I'm actually able to do my sales pitch without having to go look anything up any longer. Mm-hmm. And uh, so now they're starting to get the idea that they may have to go and, and at least be tested to see if they're – uh, there's a gene that uh, is passed down, especially on my mother's side of the family. Mm-hmm. My father's side of the family seems to have escaped this, but my mom's side, uh, no. Okay. So how how are you feeling with it, you know, personally? Um, personally, as regards to the disease, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm one of those people who will go, you know, test anything, you know, mm-hmm. it's one of the things I guess my military upbringing and, and being a military brat talking, if you've got a problem, just go to the doctor. I mm-hmm. have free medical care. So, you know, for me to just walk in and say, test me and make sure I don't have this, I'm not that, you know, I, that I will do. I, I don't have an issue with it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
as far as me personally having to deal with everything in terms of care with my mother, that has been, like I said, I haven't worked in 18 months Mm -hmm. and I have to get back to work. If for no other reason that I have a son and I don't want to be the burden to him Mm -hmm. that unfortunately my mother has been to me. Mm-hmm. And if I don't get my own house back in order, um, you know, I'm going to just pass this off to somebody else. And I desperately don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I'm putting plans in place right now to get back to work and make up for 18 months of lost income plus no more savings. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't have much doubt I can make that back. So, you know, my, my individual circumstances are fine. My emotional state, this is hard. Mm-hmm. Um I go from, I've learned that when I get emotional about mom, that don't make a decision. Just walk away. Even if I have to sit on it for a month before I make the decision, don't do it. Mm -hmm. Every time I've made a decision based on emotion, it's been the wrong one. Mm -hmm. Every time I've made a decision based on common sense and logic, it's been the correct decision. So I've trained myself now if I start feeling, you know, a little wispy or, you know, a little downtrodden to walk away from the decision-making process. Unless it's something urgent, walk away from it, come back to it when my mind is is right. Because it's still difficult for me to watch my mom on a daily basis uh, struggle. And, um, you know, knowing that she doesn't remember, the only thing she remembers is anything pre, um, I would say probably high school backwards, she can remember in detail. Mm-hmm. She still remembers the house in Atlantic City, New Jersey, where she grew up down. And I didn't even remember that house. I had to call my aunt one day and ask some questions to make sure that mom was recollecting properly as she was. Anything post 18 years of age, forget it. It's all gone. And, you know, my mother's lived all over the world because of uh, my father's military career. And she remembers none of it. She doesn't, she, um, most days she doesn't remember who I am. There are days when it'll come to her, but you know, those moments are fleeting. It'll stay for a couple hours and it's back to who are you? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've learned to accept that. But the first time I had to accept it uh, about a year ago this month, it hurt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and every time I think back to it now, I have to go to the gym and run for two hours to get it out of my system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's hard stuff. It's hard stuff. And it's, it's good that you're recognizing, um, the process though and and the toll it takes on you and even when to make a decision and when not to um those are really important learning lessons in this process they're just huge yeah it it really is and I, and i have to say something too because i'd be remiss if i didn't mention this i've been dating the same girl for 4 years now mm-hmm. and she's been with me the entire 4 years and if it wasn't for her i would not have gotten through this mm-hmm. because she sees things that i don't see she sees uh, uh, when I start to have one of my weak moments, um, she will actually pick up the pace and, and kick me in the pants or uh, just take over herself. And uh, I would you just can't manage this illness with one person by yourself. You just simply can't. And uh, I, I was fortunate that her family has also helped a lot, you know, with adopting my mom. You know, we eat dinner over at their house every Sunday and they treat her you know, like they've known her their entire life. Now, her parents are both older than my mother, mm-hmm. um, but they're healthy. And so I've been very fortunate in that regard that I have had some assistance in this. But uh, again, you know, my mom has managed to consume two adults on a full-time basis. And uh, unfortunately, that's going to have to stop. If not, <laughs> we're going to pass off our problems onto our kids, and we can't allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, that's that is wonderful that you have that support. That is absolutely fantastic. Um, very, very good. And uh, I, 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 mm-hmm. oh, go ahead. No, I was going to. I was going to say. I, I remember. When mom got diagnosed in April 2013, I was talking to the doctors at the Cleveland Clinic, and one of them mentioned to me, and I don't know which one, she has two there, they mentioned to me uh, joining support groups. Mm-hmm. Well, at the time, I was an Alzheimer's novice. I had no clue what he meant by joining a support group. Mm-hmm. I said, what are you talking about? I don't need support. Mom's the one that needs help. You know, that just goes to show you how naive I was when the diagnosis came down. I didn't realize I was the one who needed the support group. And I have since been able to cobble together a support group only because I have so many people in my family who have lived through this, and I've actually forced them to start talking mm-hmm. and opening up. My uncle has actually been very good. My aunt, who took care of my grandparents for over 10 years, she's actually been very good. So I've actually forced my family to open their mouths and speak to me. Uh, about this and and you know, have a, a shoulder to cry on or something where you know you'd be emotional support that goes with watching your loved one's mind being destroyed right in front of your eyes and there's nothing you can do about it. So you know for all your listeners, when somebody says the word support group, if you don't have it, go find it. I, I don't know how much plainer I can be because you're going to need it. You know I, I'm a pretty strong-willed person. I didn't think I needed it. Boy, was I wrong. Um, you know, I needed it. I needed it. I needed it. I'll say that a thousand times over. It, it's actually helped us a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I was like you. I didn't know I needed it until I was. I I went for um, a whole other reason. I went to hear somebody speak, a friend of mine, and then he was sick. And then here I am at a sport group that I had no intention of going to. And then I kind of went, wow. <laughs> I didn't. I, I didn't have a clue, and yet I was in the industry. But I just thought I was beyond that. You know, I thought I had things under control, and and um, it was amazing. And so, yeah. you know, sometimes even even people who are in the thick of things and out training and speaking, sometimes we're in denial, and we don't even know what we need. You know, because that's that's what this disease does to people. And um, it, it, it really does. It it it, it just. You know, coming from a military background where, you know, you know, we're trained to kind of be very strong-willed and determined and upright and handle your business yourself, this is one illness you cannot handle by yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I I totally, totally agree with you. Now, in, you know, in the past year, you know, your mom is is living with you in, in Rusty. Um, how has, and I know that you're not working now, you mentioned that. Can you give people an idea? Do you have like a daily routine or is, is every day different or? Well, about, oh gosh, about five months after she moved in, I started uh, doing research about places because I needed her. My mom is 77 years old now. From a physical standpoint, she is going to be with us, I'm guessing, about another 10 years if you can use DNA as her as a guide. Both of her parents passed away at age 95. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as long as Alzheimer's doesn't strip her of all of her bodily function abilities, I think she's going to last quite a bit longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I knew I had to do something. I had to get her engaged. My mother had become a hermit. Uh, for the last couple of years when she was living by herself. So I had to bring her out 
loud, and my mother's a natural introvert. So I started looking into visiting angels uh, here in Las Vegas to bring nurses into the house to engage, and I dismissed that, not because they did anything wrong, but because I wanted my mother to get out of the house. Mm-hmm. So right now she goes to adult daycare three days a week. And at first uh, I was actually more nervous about it than she was. But now that she goes those three days a week, uh, it's actually been a godsend because, uh, you know, obviously they do the normal feeding and caring for and things like that. But one of the things my mother loves to do is dance. Mm -hmm. That woman could dance for an hour nonstop and never miss a beat. I've actually had the caregivers (laughs) at the adult daycare ask me if my mother was a professional dancer. Uh And, of course, I'm laughing because I know better. (laughs) But they think she was. She will dance. She'll outdance them. Uh-huh. Uh, and and music is the other thing that is very important to her. My mother can, you know, I've done enough research to know now that the music and how the brain processes it is different in, in the brain than where your memories are stored. So, you know, my mother can remember music back to the 1950s word for word mm-hmm. and sings them all the time. Um, so my routine is basically those three days a week when she's at daycare, uh, she's really good. The problem is, is when we pick her up and bring her home, it takes her maybe an hour to kind of adjust a little bit because I think what happens is, is her senses are getting overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can't process all of that that fast. So for the first hour after we get her back home, it's kind of like, okay, just sit, relax, you know, turn on the television, although she can't really comprehend storylines anymore, but, or put some music on. Now it's actually gotten warm enough here in Las Vegas now where she likes to sit down on my patio mm-hmm. and watch the airplane fly by. Um, and she'll, and we actually put a radio out there because it just seems to calm her. Mm-hmm. And she'll sit there and she'll just watch the planes. The dog will sit on her lap and the music's on. And sometimes you'll hear her singing. Sometimes she'll talk to the dog and, you know, they're in bliss. Mm-hmm. On the days that she's here full time, like today, for example, she's here uh, all day today. Um, it's fairly quiet um, for the most part. Uh, it's you know we feed her four times a day, and and she pretty much stays to herself. The introverted part of her um, is still intact. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to engage my mother, you have to go to her. And so, you know, a couple of times a day I'll go and, and we'll joke for a few minutes, uh, you know, we'll talk and, and then she'll go back to just being her old introverted self. And, you know, maybe for some families that's abnormal, but for my mother, that is absolutely normal. That is just who she is. So I, I used to tease my, my uh, when I was younger and I was dating and I'd bring some of my girlfriends to the house to meet my mother and I always tease them. I said, mom is just an introvert. She's very, very, very quiet. It's nothing against you. And I can't tell you how many times I would bring a young lady home and they'd walk out the house mad at my mother because she wouldn't speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's just who my mother is. And once I convinced them that she liked them and everything was okay, that was fine. So I, you know, because I have such you know knowledge of what my mother's personality was like pre Alzheimer's, um, you know, it's it, for me, it's it, it's normal. But for them, it could really be disconcerting. Mm-hmm. Um, the I, I know sundowning goes into some Alzheimer's. My mother doesn't seem to suffer from that at all. In the year and a half she's been with me, I think she's lost her temper to where I had to do something, you know, the restrainer only once. Mm-hmm. And even that no longer happens because I've learned how to change my approach. And I've learned how to talk to her now. I've learned how to calm her down. I've learned how to 
change the subject if that's what it takes. I've learned how to do little things now that, and I anticipate. I can see a, a, a paranoia or hallucination or meltdown coming from a mile away now. I've, I've gotten that good at it. Mm-hmm. So I, I've learned some tricks of the trade. But um, for the most part, we can't, obviously, we can never leave her alone, mm-hmm. um, which ties one of us to the house the days that she's here, or we take her out for a walk. Um, she doesn't bother me. I mean, we've been on this phone for an hour, and she hasn't bothered me one time. She knows I'm talking, and she's just very polite about it. That's just who she is. And, you know, there are the occasional days where she has a bad day, and I see that coming, too. Um, we don't suffer from the typical incontinent issues yet, but I see that's coming because she's had a few mishaps over the last four or five weeks. But, uh, you know, it, it, the deterioration has been on a steady track and I, and I can see it now looking at it in hindsight through talking to you, I can definitely see that the deterioration is, is moving at a pretty significant pace now as compared to when she got here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, this has just been a wonderful conversation. Now with your book, um, how do, how do people get your book? Rusty's war. Rusty's war will actually be released sometime toward the end of this month. Okay. Uh, it will actually be on Amazon or on my website. I'm actually getting ready to, to, uh, to connect everything up to for people to buy the book. And just to let your audience know, I actually donate a portion of the proceeds to Alzheimer's care and research. Um, even though uh, my mom could use all the money, I know my mother well enough to know she would have wanted to help others. So, you know, I've made it a point to donate a portion of those proceeds to that, and then the rest of it just all goes to her care. Um, so it should be, like, I know it'll be on Amazon by the end of the month. It'll be in Barnes & Nobles by the end of the month. Uh, whether it's physically in the Barnes & Noble store, that takes about another month after that for them to decide if they're going to, you know, pick up the collection. But it'll be in all the typical places where you'd buy a book. Okay, wonderful. Or through me. And and your website is michaelgordonbennett.com. That's Michael That's Gordon Bennett. And Bennett is a double N and double T's at the end with that. There you go. Okay. <laughs> it's important stuff. Otherwise, uh, and again, the book is called Rusty's War, A Battle of the Mind. Um, and I can't wait to read it. So thank you so much for, for being with us. Any last tip or anything that you want to give our audience? Uh, last tips. Don't forget to love your loved one no matter what. Keep in mind that no matter what happens to them, it's not their fault. A lot of people I've spoken to in the past, uh, you know, kind of react in a bad way when they see that their loved one is reacting to them. They didn't do anything wrong. There's nothing to do with that. So just hold on to them and, and remember the good times. It'll it'll help. Good, good. That's great advice. Great advice. Well, I appreciate you sharing your story with us and um, and your life. And we, we would love to have you back on again um, after the book's out a while and let us know what kind of response you're getting from people and give us an update on your mom as well. So thank you. Thank you, oh, Michael. Well, well, thank you for having me, and I absolutely look forward to speaking to you and your audience again. Okay. Have, have a great, uh, great week. Thank you. Uh, for those of you that are new to uh, Alive and Social, um, I just want to uh, mention that you might want to check, if you're like me and never know what the heck's for dinner, uh, you might want to check out one of our episodes uh, that Rachel Perrin has. She has the uh, she's the culinary director for Kowalski's Markets 
here in the Twin Cities area, and she has a podcast that's only 10 to 15 minutes long called What's for Dinner Tonight, and she can really assist you in those dinner plans. Plus, you know, we've got Easter around the corner. If you're looking for some seasonal um, ideas uh, and menus, uh, you can go to Kowalskis.com and get more information. Kowalskis is K-O-W-A-L-S-K-I-S dot com, Kowalskis dot com. Again, I want to give another shout out for our Dementia Conference and Cruise, November 11th through the 18th on Holland America. Um, we are really excited about this. And you, um, in order to sign up for that, you need to go through our travel agent, who is Kathy Schoof. And um, she is with Cruise Planners. But if you just go to alzheimerspeaks.com, right on the front page, top and center, you'll be able to print out a flyer on that. Or you can go to our initiatives page and read more about who's going to be on the cruise, um, what the flow is going to be. Um, it's going to be it's going to be beautiful. Seven days together, lots of camaraderie and learning, and I think uh, rejuvenation. Um, also, um, Alzheimer Speaks Radio. If you're new to us, we've been doing this for years, and all of our shows are archived. So please, you know, if if this has been helpful for you, please go ahead and share this show with your Facebook friends, your Twitter tribe, your LinkedIn groups, um, Pinterest, etc. Um, and feel free to go back and listen to to the other shows. We've got about six years out there, and so there's lots of great information. Also want to highlight our dementia chats, which is a video interview I do um, with our experts who actually are diagnosed with dementia. And our last one talked about how they want to be communicated with, and they gave us great tips and insights um, in terms of how they want to be talked to, how they want to be engaged. They also talked about some of their senses changing and how their emotions and behaviors uh, can be affected by their surroundings. Um, as far as uh, screenings of His Neighbor Phil, I'll be in Woodbury in St. Therese, May 20th. And May 28th, I'll be in Ellsworth, Wisconsin. We're also going to be doing a screening of that on the, um, on the cruise as well, if you're interested. And don't forget to check out our blog. There you'll get lots of great information uh, there's a new edition of the 36-hour day coming out, and you can get 20% off on that. That's coming out this April. Um, there's also some information on some trials, and I think that's a wrap for us. You guys have a wonderful week, and enjoy your Easter. Bye now. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.